and welcome to the Turkish History Podcast. Episode 4, Divided We Fall. So last time we discussed Mukan Khan and Taspar Khan, and the united first Göktürk Khanate, as it stood on Taspar's death, at the zenith of its power, the greatest steppe empire yet seen. Though of course the Mongols would later have something to say about that. It was unprecedented, both in size, stretching from the Black Sea to the Pacific, and in sophistication. Never before had a steppe confederation managed to attain this level of central authority. Based around the now semi-divine Ashina clan, and resting upon Sogdian and Chinese models of government and administration. But sown within the Khanate were the seeds of division. Unity could only work within the east-west split between the Khan and the Yabgu if one of the two was acknowledged to be below the other. In other words, the Yabgu's second-place status was the key element of maintaining a united political system. Now this worked well enough during the reigns of Ishtami in the west and Mukan and Taspar in the east. These guys were essentially the direct successors to Bumin. Ishtami and Mukan were alive when Bumin began his revolt and when the Khanate was established. And Taspar was Bumin's son from the vaunted Chinese wife that he had received as essentially war booty upon his defeat of the Ruran. Now I think Ishtami must have chafed at least a little bit being subordinated to his nephews. He had been by Bumin's side from the beginning, there when he began the revolt against the Ruran, and he would have had a great deal of respect and standing in the Ashina clan and throughout the whole of the young Khanate. But this very reputation insulated him from interference from Mukan or Taspar meddling with him or overtly forcing him to bend the knee. And in addition, Mukan and Taspar had their own things to work on in China. Additionally, Ishtami's stunning success in the West made up for his second-place political status. He was the de facto ruler west of the Tian Shan, west of the Gobi, and he wasn't getting orders coming in from the East. As a matter of speculation, I think also knowing that this was Bumin's will, that Ishtami would continue as Yabgu in the West, made the whole system easier to work. But as the succession entered into the next generation, this system of dual rule began to break down. As we've discussed before, the Turks would never really develop a formalized succession system. Right up to the end of the Ottoman dynasty in 1923, the state was seen as sort of being under the collective sovereignty of the ruling clan as a whole, any member of whom could succeed. This meant that succession was always a fraught political moment, and doubly so now, when both thrones are vacated at roughly the same time. In the west, Ishtami was succeeded by his son Tardu in 575 about three years after Mukan was succeeded by Taspar. We discussed Taspar's reign last time, how under his reign the Khanate reached its zenith. But now we're going to turn to the west, where the seeds of the coming civil war have been planted. Tardu, more than Taspar, was really the beginning of the second generation of the Ashina to come to power. The first who didn't have that personal connection to Bumin, be it son or brother. He was instead Bumin's nephew, Ishtami's son. Now, Tardu had ruled as Shad, or as governor, under his father, overseeing a portion of the Western Khanate. Tardu was ambitious, capable, strong-willed, and utterly ruthless, which, as we will come to see over and over again, are qualities that, when found in a second fiddle in the context of a Turkish succession crisis, are basically a recipe for civil war. I think it's fair to say, from the beginning, Tardu had no intention of being second to anyone. 
But at the time he came to power, Mukan was still Khan in the east and would reign for another three years. And in any event, Tardu had to consolidate his own rule in the west. There are some references to revolts among the western Turkic sub-tribes and sedentary peoples in the early years of his rule, but we don't have good records. It's almost unimaginable, though, that they didn't occur. After the death of Ishtami, many peoples would have taken a chance to see what they could get away with. Tardu probably spent his first years as Yabgu traveling widely in the western Khanate to threaten, reassure, and pressure the tribes and people of his half of the Gokturk state. Then, when Taspar was Khan in the east, Tardu bided his time. I think he realized that Taspar's legitimacy was rock solid, both because of his direct connection to Bumin and because of his success in manipulating the Chinese states and entrenching Turkish power over northern China. Instead, Tardu looked both west and south, to Byzantium and Iran. When we left off in episode 2, the Roman embassy led by Zamarcus had met with Ishtami, and the Turks and the Romans had agreed, in principle, to attack Iran together. But then Ishtami died, and the status of their agreement became unclear. So in 576, the Romans sent another embassy, led by a certain Valentinus, to the Gokturk, that is, to the western court under Tardu. At this point, Tardu had been Yabgu for less than a year, and it had only been a couple years since the Zamarcus mission. Since then, the Romans and the Persians had become deeply engaged in their latest round of bloodshedding, which started less than a decade into the so-called 50-year peace in 572. The cycle of violence that this would begin would prove to be the last between the Romans and the Persians, the last in a long series of totally pointless and destructive wars that would eventually leave both empires depleted and nearly broken, with even the victors losing. Valentinus was sent to the Turks to convince them to join the fight against the Sassanids. Indeed, both empires were searching for allies on the periphery of the other. Romans attempting to get the Turks to join up, Persians trying to get the Avars to join up, and both trying to get various Arab tribal confederations on side. But the Arabs were a secondary concern. I mean, who in their right mind would ever expect the Arabs, of all people, to pose a threat to the two great empires? I mean, come on. So this mission of the Romans to the Turks didn't come out of the blue. There had been continuous contact with the Byzantine Empire since the early days of Ishtami's western conquests. Menander, for example, tells us that at the time, quote, Turks who had been sent by their various tribes on various occasions had been in Byzantium for a long while, end quote. Menander also said that the mission in 580 was not the first embassy to the Turks led by Valentinus, and he had been on two earlier missions to the Turkish court. So clearly, this was an ongoing relationship. Valentinus's embassy left for Central Asia by traveling by boat from Sinope in northern Anatolia on the Black Sea coast up to the Crimea, taking about 106 Turks with them, probably to act as guides and as translators. From there, they traveled by horse across the steppe, passing through the lands of various sub-tribes of the Gökturk. Menander reports that the western lands of the Gökturk Khanate were divided into eight parts, and that the leaders of these eight parts were appointed by the Khan, and moreover, one of them was a woman. This is the first mention of a woman wielding political power in Turkish history, though in time powerful mothers and wives of sultans would bring about the so-called Sultanate of Women, at this time, political power was essentially exclusively male in the Turkic world. Unfortunately, we know nothing about this woman, other than that her name was Akkagash, and she was a member of the Ashina clan sent to be the Shad over a portion of the western Turkish Khanate. 
The only other thing we can say for sure is that she must have been incredibly impressive to have risen this far in such a patriarchal time and place. Valentinus eventually came before Tomgon, Tardu's brother, who had been appointed as a shod over the westernmost areas of the Khanate. As Tardu's brother, he was also the son of Ishtami, and was still in official mourning for his father, who, remember, had just recently died. Valentinus brought up the alliance that had been made with Ishtami and said basically, hey look, we already concluded an alliance here, and you said whoever is our enemy is your enemy. So really, you should go and attack the Persians. But Tomgan and the Turks were not entirely happy with the Romans at this point. Remember, as we discussed in episode 2, the basis of the alliance between Byzantium and the Turks had three basic components. A commercial trade agreement, an anti-Persian military alliance, and an anti-Avar military alliance. The Turks had not forgotten about the Avars, who had fled them as refugees and established their new Khanate on the Hungarian plain, which the Turks had just never accepted. The Turks continued to see the Avars as their subjects, but the new Avar Khanate in the far west continued to grow in strength, and the Turks were keen to crush it and expand the Khanate deeper into the west. The Romans, however, had no interest in the Turks bringing their powerful Khanate further west and closer to the gates of Constantinople, so they tried to play the Avars off the Turks, while at the same time fighting the Avars in the field. They tried to keep the Turks from truly defeating the Avars, and tried to keep Turkish embassies and trade missions from traveling across the Ukrainian steppes and south when they came to Constantinople. Instead, they brought visiting Turks through the Caucasus Mountains. The Byzantines didn't want Turks scouting the lands to the far west, and they lied to them, alleging that the path through the Caucasus was the only way to Roman territory. Menander records a fantastic tongue-lashing, supposedly given by Tomgon to Valentinus. I'm going to read it in full because it's just awesome, even though the exact words are at least in part an adventure of Menander. Tomgon reportedly said, quote, Are you not those very Romans who use ten tongues and lie with all of them? And then, placing ten fingers in his mouth, he said, As now there are ten fingers in my mouth, so you Romans have used as many tongues. Sometimes you deceive me, sometimes my slaves the Avars. In a word, Having flattered and deluded all the tribes with your various speeches and your treacherous designs, when harm descends upon their heads, you abandon them and take all the benefits for yourselves. You envoys come to me dressed with lies, and he who has sent you deceives me equally. I shall kill you immediately and without delay. To lie is foreign and alien to a Turk, and your emperor shall pay me due penalty. For he has spoken words of friendship to me, while also making a treaty with the Avars, our slaves, who have fled their masters. When I wish it, the Avars shall come to me as subjects of the Turks. If they as much see my horsewhip sent to them, they will flee to the lowest reaches of the earth. As for you Romans, why do you take my envoys through the Caucasus to Byzantium, alleging that there is no other route for them to travel? You do this so that I might be deterred from attacking the Roman Empire by the difficult terrain. But I know very well where the river Dnieper flows, and the Danube, and the Hebrus, and from where our slaves the Avars crossed into Roman territory. I know your strength, for the whole world is open to me, from the farthest east to the very western edge. Consider, wretches, the Alan nation, and also the tribes of the Onigurs, full of confidence and trusting their own strength they faced the invincible might of the Turks. But their hopes were dashed, and so they are our subjects, and they number among our slaves. End quote. 
I mean, that's just awesome stuff. This dressing down really shows both the extent of Turkish rule and their confidence at this time, the zenith of their power. It's a boast from a power on the rise. It's also a reminder to the Romans that the Turks aren't just going to attack the Sassanids for nothing. They've got some real asks here, and they're very upset with the Roman double-dealing and refusal to help them crush the Avars. In response, Valentinus basically abased himself and said to Tomgon, Look, we were the friends of your fathers, and we have no intent to lie to you. But he also noted that it would be a very, very bad idea to kill a Roman ambassador. Now, Tomgon likely had no intention of actually killing the Romans. I think he just wanted to spook them and let them know of the Turkish grievances before they were sent on to Tartu. He also asked the Romans to participate in the funerary ritual for Ishtami, which consisted of slashing your own face with a dagger. But it's kind of funny, this ritual doesn't appear in any other sources about Turkish funerals, so part of me does wonder if Tomgon just made it up to have them cut their own faces. We don't know much more about Valentinus's mission, but it seems to have been something of an own goal. Instead of getting the Turks to attack Iran, the Turks ended up attacking perfidious Byzantium. After meeting with Valentinus, Tardu decided to have Tomgon launch an attack on the Bosporan Kingdom, a Byzantine vassal in the Crimea. The attack was successful, but unfortunately all we know about the battles is that the Byzantines record, quote, the city of Bospors was taken by the Turks. Crimea and the area around the Sea of Azov was captured, securing Turkish access to the Black Sea and potentially serving as a forward base for an attack into the Ukrainian steppes. So Tardu, at least at first, was not exactly excited about invading Iran, and instead was looking to castigate the Romans, perhaps helping to convince them to aid him in a campaign against the Avars. But at the same time, he also had no desire to actually go to war with Rome, and almost certainly saw that the Sassanids were both a greater threat to him and a better target for raiding and plunder, lying as they did right next to the Turkish heartland of Central Asia. So I think his decision to attack a Roman vassal was, at least in part, an attempt to send a message to Byzantium, a reminder that it's better to be with the Turks than against them. While Tardu was active in the West, negotiating with and attacking the Byzantines and consolidating his rule over the western steppes, Tospar's reign was coming to an end in the East. Remember, Tospar had overseen the zenith of the united Gokturk Khanate and had wielded power over the northern Chinese dynasties. But things in China were changing, and a new dynasty was coming to power, aiming to unite China. The northern Zhao had gotten the ball rolling on this by finishing off the northern Qi, but in the south a new dynasty was arising, the short-lived Sui dynasty, which is mostly remembered as a precursor to the mighty Tang, had consolidated power in the south of China under the formidable and relentless Emperor Wen. Emperor Wen was a workaholic and a micromanager. And unlike the rulers of the northern dynasties, he was himself thoroughly Han Chinese. Remember that the northern dynasties were descended from the Sinicized steppe peoples, mostly Mongols. Not so with the Sui, who were Han through and through. The Sui swept aside the northern Zhao in 581, the same year that Taspar Khan died. Their ability to do this was in fact predicated upon the death of Taspar Khan and the succession crisis that would shortly engulf the Gokturk Khanate. Had Taspar Khan lived longer, the Turks doubtless would have done everything in their power to stop the emergence of a powerful state to their south. But, in a pattern that is going to play itself out over and over and over again over the course of this podcast, the disunity of the Turks and their inability to develop clear rules of succession meant that the death of Taspar Khan precipitated a huge succession crisis. 
This turned the focus of the Göktürk Khanate inwards, and instead of stopping the emergence of a united China, which, you know, spoiler alert, is going to crush them all, the Turks fell into a destructive civil war. So Taspar died in 581, and the news of his death spread across the steppes. Immediately, the Khanate fell into a political crisis. Remember that Taspar was one of the most senesized Turks. His mother had been Chinese. His wife was Chinese. He was a Buddhist. And it wasn't just him, it was his whole family. His son Amrak was in fact three-quarters Chinese and grew up steeped in Chinese culture and the Chinese way of life. And during Taspar's reign, there had been a general turning away from Sogdian and Turkish steppe culture and towards Chinese culture, especially in the East. Now, as we've discussed, this is something that is very common throughout steppe empires, the continuous cooking of the barbarians, as the Chinese would say. The barbarians adopt more and more of the customs of the sedentary peoples they rule over. And this, in turn, leads to tensions with the less-cooked steppe nomads, those who did not assimilate to the sedentary culture. We can call this the modernist-traditionalist divide. But Taspar had been very mindful of the divisions in the Khanate, and it appears that he wanted to appoint someone who could be a compromise candidate, acceptable to both the East and the West, and acceptable to the modernizers and to the traditionalists. But more than any you know, ideological or quote-unquote ideological differences, what really caused the coming civil war, more than anything else, was the disordered succession system. There could be only one, but it could be anyone. And as the empire grew rich, as the West became self-confident and powerful, the thought of being ruler of the whole became too powerful to resist, and the thought of submitting to another became too terrible to contemplate. So Taspar attempted to bequeath the throne to his nephew, Appa Khan, the son of Mukan Khan. But this was not uncontested. Amrak, Taspar's son by his Chinese wife, also claimed the Khanate, as did Ishbara, who, as you'll recall from last episode, was a son of Mukan who Taspar had appointed to be a sub-Khan in the east of the Gokturk domains, ruling over a part of Manchuria and northern China. As there was no formal succession system, Apo, Amrak, and Ishbara, as members of the Ashina clan, would each have a claim. And so, in this context, a great Kurultai was called upon the death of the great Khan Taspar to try to sort this all out. The Kurultai, that great assembly of the Gokturk Khanate, met at the holy mountains and semi-capital of the Khanate in Ötükan. All the tribes of the Khanate, though not the subject tribes or the sedentary peoples, would have sent either their leaders or emissaries to decide who should succeed the dead Taspar as lord of the grasslands. And even though the subject peoples would not have had a right to participate, they definitely would have sent emissaries, for a Kurultai was a singularly important moment on the steppe, when all of the nomadic power usually spread wide across the grasslands, always on the move, always dispersed, became, for a brief moment, static and completely fixed in place. This was the time marriages, alliances, trade deals, and other relationships were made, broken, cemented, and remade. Even if you didn't have a seat at the table, you'd want a seat in the audience. And you'd want to see if maybe you could influence the outcome. So imagine great hosts arriving from the western steppes, from the Khazars, the Ohus, and the Karluks, from the eastern steppes, from the Uyghurs and the Khitan, emissaries from Chinese courts and from Sogdian city-states, from Bactria, maybe even ambassadors from Iran and Byzantium. Members of the Ashina clan from both east and west would have joined most importantly those vying for the throne. 
and they would have not just gone themselves, but they would have brought retainers, gifts, slaves, treasures. Those trying to gain the throne would have needed to argue and bribe and cajole the Kurultai into supporting them. Perhaps most importantly, bribe, creating a need for money among the claimants, and providing a perfect way for those Iranian Sagdian, and most importantly for this particular Kurultai, Chinese emissaries, with a way to influence the results. Back the winning candidate, and suddenly the most powerful man in Eurasia, the lord of the grasslands and its armies, owes you. But maybe, if you're a newly established fledgling Chinese dynasty trying to throw off the yoke of the powerful steppe empire, maybe you want chaos. And maybe, if you're a powerful Yabgu in the west, who is tired of being forced to bend the knee to the east, disorder at the top isn't too bad of a thing. And maybe you start thinking those Chinese emissaries stopping by Otuken might be worth talking to. And none of this has to stop with the Kurultai's decision if you don't want to accept it. Now we don't know the details of the Kurultai's debates, but we know the broad strokes. Amrak, Taspar's son, refused to yield to Apo, Taspar's chosen successor. The Kurultai deadlocked. It seems to have gotten stuck on the issue of legitimacy. Amrak was born of a Chinese princess, and no doubt people would have remembered that Taspar himself was half Chinese. Could such a person truly lead from horseback? Both Amrak, son of the great Taspar, but steeped in Chinese culture, and Apo, son of Mukan Khan, the traditionalist, keeper of the stepway of life, refused to budge. But there had to be a successor, and sensing his opportunity, Ishbara stepped forward as a compromise candidate. As governor of the far eastern realms of the Khanate appointed by Taspar, he was deeply acquainted with Chinese culture and had access to the resources of the Chinese state. He was acceptable to the Amrak faction of modernizers, and he was a full-blooded Turk, raised in the saddle, son of Mukan Khan, and so acceptable to the traditionalist faction of Apo. And so the Kurultai came up with what they hoped to be a compromise. Ishbara would be the Ilig Khan, the guy on top. Amrak Khan would be a second Khan under Ishbara, ruling over the central and eastern areas of the eastern part of the Khanate. And Apo Khan would be made a lower-ranking sub-Khan of both of them, ruling over the western part of the eastern part of the Khanate. Tardu would remain on in the west, now the sole uncontested ruler of the largest part of the Khanate. On the surface, this solved the problem. The Book of Sway reported that, quote, Ishbara was brave and won the hearts of his subjects, and all the northern barbarians submitted to him, end quote. But under the surface, this settlement, probably the best the Kurultai could have done given the conflicts at play here, was inherently unstable. Yes, there was an Ilig Khan in Ishbara, but his rule over the east was in effect split with his two underbosses, each of whom was appointed not by the Khan, but by the Kurultai. They each therefore had for themselves the legitimacy of the Kurultai decision, and they couldn't just be gotten rid of easily by Ishbara. Also, now the two under Khans are bitter rivals with each other, and angry at Ishbara for swooping in and taking the top spot from them. And that leaves Tardu in the west, now the strongest of the bunch in real terms, despite being nominally underneath Ishbara. And he has a real incentive to make sure this whole delicate balancing act in the east doesn't work. And spoiler alert, it's not going to work. Almost immediately, the three Khans in the East fell into dispute, very much helped along by Tardu 
and importantly, the young Sui dynasty. Now, Tardu had no intention of ever truly recognizing the results of the Kurultai, and the evidence is that he never really accepted that Ishbara was his overlord. From the death of Tasbar on, Tardu was focused on two goals. One was expanding the power of the Turks westwards and southwards towards Byzantium and Iran, and the other was becoming the Ilig Khan of the whole Turkish Khanate himself, to see to it that the line of Ishtami replaced the line of Bumin. Amrak was the first one to drop out. The Book of Sway says, quote, Apa Khan, having not secured the succession, was at heart unsubmissive to Amrak, and on several occasions sent people to revile him. Amrak was powerless to control him, and therefore abdicated in favor of Ishbara. There is no real record of what happened to Amrak after this, but it seems likely that he lasted on the throne for less than a year. Maybe he returned to China, the land of his mother. Hardu then began to cultivate Apa Khan as a way to undermine Ishbara. Meanwhile, like a mischievous child eyeing a tottering Jenga tower, Emperor Wen of the Sui, who that same year had crushed the northern Zhao, usurping their power and firmly founding his new dynasty, this relentless workaholic began poking at the bricks of the tower from the east. This new Sui dynasty was of course a threat to Turkish hegemony over northern China. And Ishbara was also not a huge fan of the Sui. His wife was a northern Chinese princess who hated the Sui for their conquests of the northern dynasties. There's also some indications that Ishbara welcomed refugees into his court from the Chen, that southern dynasty that the Sui had crushed. And Ishbara no doubt had his wife telling him all about how terrible the Sui were the whole time. So Ishbara's position was undermined, with both the Sui and Tardu cultivating Apa Khan. To solidify his shaky rule, Ishbara launched a massive raid against the Sui in 582. It had two real goals, provide the Turks under his rule with booty as a way to reward them and solidify his rule, and to put the Sui in their place. And it appears to have been a huge success. Chinese sources say that the Turks carried off basically all of the livestock of northern China. But it didn't actually solve Ishbara's problem. The succession crisis was not fundamentally a fixable problem as long as Apa Khan remained alive. Ishbara would always have to deal with his subordinate. In response to this raid, in 583, less than two years into Ishbara Khan's reign, Emperor Wen commissioned his brother, Yang Shuang, to launch an attack on Ishbara Khan. Ishbara called upon Apo to fulfill his duties and to fight for the Khanate, which Apo seems to have done. But Ishbara also wanted to use this as an opportunity to get rid of him. So while Apo Khan was fighting the Sui, Ishbara essentially stabbed him in the back and attacked all of his people in an attempt to consolidate his power, to cut the knot and solve the problems caused by this messy succession. This attack would be the attack that kicked off the civil war the civil war that would last for 20 years and would forever break the Gokturk state. Ishbara's double cross was not successful. Apa Khan and his retainers fled west to Tardu, who was of course more than willing to help them out. For their part, the Sui were of course loving this. Emperor Wen had no interest in helping any one side win the civil war. He wanted a divided step as he completed his unification and consolidation of rule in China. Tardu also loved it. As the East weakened, the West, unified under his rule, could claim the top job. It was time, finally, for the line of Ishtami to replace the line of Bumin and become the lords of the grasslands. 
Ishbara knew that his position was weakened after his failed destruction of Apo Khan, and so he launched a purge of his enemies in the Khanate. This purge was deep and wide. It targeted anyone who could be a threat to Ishbara. Apo Khan's longtime supporters, including powerful members of the Ashna clan who served as Shahs, fled west to Tardu. And it is here that the break between east and west became permanent. Ishbara sent messengers to Tardu saying, I, the Ilig Khan, demand that you send me Apo Khan and his supporters. And Tardu, who was already basically in quasi-revolt, defied Ishbara, the person who claimed to be his nominal overlord. He said, no way. Come and take them. The civil war, which started initially as a limited conflict in the eastern half of the Khanate between Apo Khan and Ishbara, had widened. It now morphed into a war between the eastern and western halves of the Gokturk state. And so, in 585, Tardu, along with his brother Tamgan, launched an invasion of the east. The previously united Gokturk Khanate was sundered. Tardu and Tamgan were claiming that this war was made to restore the rights of Apo Khan. But in reality, it was about establishing themselves, the line of Ishtami, as lords in the east. The western armies swept east, and in 585, Tardu and Tamgan's forces met Ishbara's army near the holy mountain of Otukan, deep in the inner sanctuary of the eastern half of the Khanate. There, they inflicted a shattering defeat on Ishbara. His armies routed. Ishbara, with no other options, fled to the court of his most hated enemy, Emperor Wen of the Sway, begging for aid. Now, as far as Emperor Wen was concerned, this was just fine. He wasn't driven by some sort of pathological hatred of Ishbara. He just wanted the Gokturk state divided and weak. So he said, sure thing. Happy to have you on board, Ishbara. And he accepted Ishbara as a vassal, which must not have made Ishbara's wife very happy. This was also a moment of great importance for Emperor Wen. Remember, the Sui were the first native Han dynasty in a long time. And the submission of the Great Khan was a way for Emperor Wen to confirm the Mandate of Heaven had settled on the Sui and a symbol of the liberation of the Chinese from the barbarian yoke. Now, Tardu, of course, had no intention of putting Apokan on the throne above him. But it seems like he didn't want to just drop him entirely. Perhaps he wanted to use him as a puppet Khan that he could use to rule the East in the short term. So as Tardu returned to the West, he left some forces in the East to maintain his strength and support Apokan. But Apokan was far less successful in the wars against Ishbara and his new Sway allies than Tardu had been. By 587, a mere two years after Ishbara's defeat, Apokan had been defeated and driven back to Bukhara, one of the great Silk Road cities in the West ruled by Tardu. But his defeat did not mean the restoration of Ishbara, because Ishbara himself also died in 587 while residing in the Sway court. Tardu, at this time, likely claimed the throne for himself, and appears to have appointed as Sub-Khan, the brother of Ishbara, Shaba, to rule in the east, but this was not universally accepted. Ishbara's son Tulan Khan assumed his father's claim, including his status as a Sway vassal. So the Eastern Khanate was now divided between those tribes who supported Tardu in his claim to sole rulership, and those tribes who supported Tulan Khan, and who were backed by the Sway. But Tardu was overstretched, and he made a miscalculation. Instead of focusing on swiftly defeating Tulan Khan in the aftermath of Ishbara's death, and putting a stop to the Sway's attempt to divide the Khanate in the east, Tardu's attention was drawn away. 
he became drawn into the rapidly devolving political situation in the West, attempting to use the chaos to further his interests in the lands near his western heartland. As we said at the top of the episode, the Romans and the Persians had gone back to war in 572. This war would last until 592, and would be one of the bloodiest of the Roman and Persian wars. It would turn out to be the penultimate war, followed only by the War of 602-628, to which would leave both empires exhausted and depleted, just as a certain prophet had completed his unification of the Arab tribes. But we'll get to that soon enough. When we left them off, the Romans were getting their teeth kicked in. But now, in the 580s, the war had turned to Byzantium's favor after a disastrous start. In 583, Emperor Maurice had just been declared emperor after the death of Tiberius II. They had also recently put down and resolved a mutiny in the legions, and were feeling ready to begin an attempt to retake territories lost to Khosrau. But, just as Tardu was defeating Ishbara, the Avars launched a brutal attack in the Balkans, taking Sirmium. The Persians and the Avars had made an alliance, the Avars attacking Rome from the north just as the Persians launched an attack from the east. So the Romans were now desperate for help, and they sent emissaries to Tardu. If they could just convince Tardu to attack Iran from the north, then they could reverse it on the Sassanids, get a nomadic empire to do the same thing to the Persians as the Persians had done to them. Tardu, eager to expand his power in the west, jumped at this opportunity. Likely, he was concerned about Sassanid influence in the Silk Road cities and hoped to expand his power deep into Bactria. If he could completely lock down Bactria and the Silk Road cities south of the Oxus, when combined with Tamgan's conquests around the Black Sea, the Turkish Khanate would have sole control of the trade routes from China to Europe and the Middle East. The resulting war would be only the first of a series of wars between the Turkish Khanate and the Persians. Wars made in alliance with Rome, but for the glory of the Khan. And ultimately, this Byzantine-Turkish alliance would be victorious over the Persians, though as we will come to see, neither the Romans nor the Turks would ever really taste the fruits of this victory. The first Turkish invasion in 588 was led by Shaba, the brother of Ishbara who Tardu had raised up as Khan beneath him in the east. It was conducted in concert with Roman invasions of Iran from the west and assaults by Rome's Arab allies into Mesopotamia and from Rome's allies in the Caucasus into northern Iran. The Turkish hordes crossed the Oxus and moved south. The Turks made for the city of Herat in modern-day Afghanistan, one of the key cities in Bactria and a central point on the Silk Road. They quickly secured its submission. At this point, the Sassanids had assembled their armies in Marv, today in Turkmenistan, to the north and west of Herat, between the Turkish army and the Central Asian steppes north of the Oxus. Upon learning about this, Shaba, who the Persian sources call Save Shah, turned his forces back to the north to march on the Sassanids. The Shah Name says, quote, Save Shah advanced from Herat with elephants, war drums, and wealth. To number his troops, count to a thousand four hundred times. From the plain of Herat to Marvrud, the land was filled with his warriors, as dense as the warp woven with the weft. End quote. As Shaba was marching on Marv, the Romans were advancing from the west, reconquering areas in the Middle East that Khosrau had taken. 
Shah Hormozd, the Sassanid Shah of the time, was himself related to the Ashna clan. He was the grandson of the Turkish wife sent by Ishtami to Shah Khosrau earlier, and he knew just how terrifying the Turkish armies were, and he worked desperately to raise forces to combat this multi-pronged invasion. According to the Shahnameh, he summoned his nobles and priests and said that this was the most dire situation Iran had ever been in. These nobles and priests then agreed with Shah Hormoz that the Turks were the biggest immediate threat, and that they needed to do whatever they could to defeat them before turning around to defend the Middle Eastern territories from the Romans. Shah Hormozd also tried to play for time. He tried to get the Romans or their vassals to give up the campaign so he could focus the state's resources entirely on the Turks. Shah Hormozd gave command of his armies to Bahram Chobin, the great general, also called Merabandak, which means servant of Mithra. Bahram is one of the greatest heroes of Iranian history, and one of the greatest characters in the Shahnameh. He would even briefly serve as Shah himself. As a wildly popular, successful general, Shah Hormozd greatly distrusted him, and for good reason. Bahram would eventually lead a rebellion against him. But for now, Shah Hormozd was out of options. He had no choice but to give Bahram the command, and hope that he could defeat Shaba and the Turks. Bahram took over the Persian armies in Marv and began marching towards Herat. They came into contact with the Turkish army near Herat in April 588. According to the Shahnameh, because Shah Hormozd was afraid of both Bahram and Shaba, he sent flattering letters and gifts to Shaba, trying to trick him into thinking that they could work together to defeat Bahram. And because of this trickery, Bahram's forces had time to reoccupy Herat as the Turks were waiting for Hormoz's aid and assistance. But if any episode like this occurred, in reality it was probably Hormoz trying to actually cut a deal, or at least hedge his bets. Both the Shahnameh and the history of Al-Tabari, an important early Islamic source written in the 800s, also have Shaba trying to get Bahram to switch sides and make an attempt on the throne. So instead of a straightforward story of an Iranian state facing a Turkish horde, we should think of this as a dance of three parties. An Iranian army, a Turkish army, and the royal court of Iran, all sending each other messages trying to see who would give who the best deal. Ultimately, Bahram chose to remain loyal and to try to defeat the Turkish invaders. In one of those genius maneuvers of generalship for which he is justly famous, Bahram was able to maneuver his army between Shaba and the city of Herat and into a narrow pass. In this narrow pass, the mobility of the Turkish steppe archers was greatly diminished. Shaba was therefore unable to effectively deploy the Turkish cavalry, their greatest military asset. Hemmed in, he was badly defeated by Bahram. With no option, the Turks fled north, back to the Turkish Khanate, north of the Oxus. Bahram was able to reconquer all of Balkh, modern-day Afghanistan, and re-establish Persian rule south of the Oxus. The Shahnameh actually says Shaba was killed in this battle, but this is almost certainly not true, as Ferdowsi likely broke up the real Shaba into two characters so that one could die in this battle for, like, artistic purposes. The Turks, stung by this defeat, regrouped and struck back. In late 588, they crossed the Oxus again to try to defeat the Iranians. They failed a second time, and Shaba was actually killed this time. According to Al-Tabari, quote, So Bahram marched against the Khan with the force accompanying him, and fell on him by night, killing the Khan with his own hand, 
and spreading slaughter among the Khan's troops. Those who escaped being killed were put to flight and showed their backs. They left behind their encampment, their wives, their children, and their goods. Al Tabari goes on to say, quote, Bahram had seized the Khan's crown and diadem, and had conquered his country in the land of the Turks. End quote. Bahram would go on to send raiding parties north as far as Bukhara, but he didn't, or most likely couldn't, hold that territory. The Turkish invasion had failed, but the Oxus, that is the Amu Darya River, remained the dividing line between the states. Bahram would go on to defeat Iran's enemies in the Caucasus and defeat the Romans before rebelling against Shah Hormozd. But his defeat of the Turks was the crowning achievement of his military career. He would later help Khosrau II, also called the Great, the last great pre-Islamic Iranian Shah, seize the throne in 590. Bahram himself would then rule for a short period of time, but ultimately he would be defeated by the Romans at the Battle of Blarathon and would, ironically, flee to Tardu, seeking asylum in 591. Tardu granted this, and Bahram spent the rest of his life with the Turks, even helping stop a plot against Tardu by another member of the Ashina clan. Unfortunately for him, the rest of his life wasn't that long. It was cut short by an assassin sent by Khosrau II in about 595. Khosrau II knew a living Bahram would always be a threat to his rule. Tardu, for his part, was chastened after his great defeat in 588. The first war with Iran had been a total failure, and he'd lost an Ashina Khan in the process, a Khan who probably would have been put to better use consolidating his rule in the east instead of giving the Sui time to entrench their power in northern China and on the eastern steppe. After his defeat at the hands of the Sassanids, Tardu belatedly turned back to the east. His invasion of Iran had proven to be a costly mistake. He lost time, money, blood, and resources that he could have better used in the East to consolidate his control of the Khanate. His overall goal, remember, was to finally become the sole ruler of the Gokturk Khanate, and to do this, he needed to defeat this way. Ultimately, whether it was Tulan Khan or another member of the Ashina clan, it was the Sui's desire to destabilize the Khanate in the East that made the situation unstable so they really just had to be defeated in order for him to secure his control in the east. And Tardu had another objective. Wipe out virtually the whole line of Bumin in the east. These people, his cousins, were his most potent rivals. If he was going to be the sole Khan, the succession rules of the Turks essentially meant that he had to eliminate all competition. In the years that Tardu was focused on the war with Iran, Talun Khan had managed to establish some form of independence from the Sway. From 593 or so, he was strong enough to withhold his tribute from the Sway court. But when Talun Khan established his independence from the Sway, the Sway just turned to one of his other shots. They started cultivating Yami Khan as part of their strategy of division. Yami Khan was another son of Ishbara and had been appointed as Shad by Talun Khan. And Yami Khan was just really deep in with the Sway. He was informing on Talun's movements and intentions, and generally just kind of being a narc. So Tardu now allied with Talun. Now, Tardu had never accepted Ishbara as the Ilig Khan, but he was now forced to at least accept that Talun was an equal of his, nominally. He wasn't going to accept being below Talun, but perhaps a formula of there being two equal Khans, one in the east, one in the west, would work. That is until Tardu could, of course, figure out how to betray Talun and have him killed. Like, long term, he was not going to accept 
anybody ruling with him. With this agreement in hand, Tardu sent his forces east, and in 597, the combined arms of Tardu and Talun defeated Yami's forces, and Yami was forced to flee to the Sui court, where the Sui declared him Khan. A puppet Khan that they would just hold in their pocket. You know, see a pattern here? The Sui just keep meddling with the internal affairs of the Gokturk Khanate, doing whatever they can to divide and weaken the state. The only real solution was to defeat them and force them to bend the knee. But it wasn't entirely clear if Tardu actually had the power to do this after losing that war with Iran. But he had to try. And so two years later, in 599, Tardu and Talun invaded the lands of the Sui directly, to great success. No doubt they had been continually raiding the Sui by now, but this was just a much, much bigger invasion. It was an escalation of the war. But then, you know, shockingly, Talun died, murdered by his own men. Certainly, Tardu was behind this. He now felt secure enough to do away with the need for a partner in power. Tardu, as ever, aimed for sole rule. And he briefly achieved it. From 600, Tardu was the sole Khan of a reunited Turkish Khanate. The last Khan of a reunited Turkish Khanate and the last man to rule the steppe from east to west, from the Black Sea to the Gobi, until the successors of Genghis Khan 600 years later. But it would not be for long, because to secure himself, Tardu knew that he had to inflict a defeat on the Sui to stop their meddling once and for all. Hopefully, he could also get his hands on Yami Khan and finish him off. In 601, therefore, a mere one year later, Tardu assembled a massive horde and marched east. He came to the walls of Chang'an, the Sui capital, and put it to siege. But the Sui did not just sit there. Think about this from their perspective. Over a period of three years or so, they had been at basically constant war with the Turks. And now the one thing they'd been trying to avoid, the unification of the steppe and a massive invasion of an organized Khan, was upon them. So they sent emissaries off across the steppe to the Karluks, to the Kangar, to the Anuors, to the Bulgars, to the Tuyuhun, and most importantly, to the Tele. These embassies came bearing gifts and a message. Rise up and destroy Tardu. And this message was successful. No doubt Tardu's rule was becoming unpopular. Massive wars to invade Iran and China are not cheap. No doubt the settled peoples and the nomads alike both subjects and members of the Khanate's inner circle tribes were tired of taxes, tired of conscription, tired of an overbearing and warlike Khan. A Khan with a seemingly endless appetite for blood. But most importantly, the members of the Ashina clan saw that if Tardu was victorious, there would be no stopping him. And he was a man who had shown himself willing and able to shed Ashina blood, especially that of the line of Bumin. As we briefly discussed earlier, there were already assassination plots against Tardu, even before he killed Talun, one of which was stopped by Bahram. Tardu was already seen as a danger to many of the Ashina leaders. And so, these Ashina leaders led the tribes into rebellion, in part to save their own skins. Beginning in 601, the Khanate was rocked by rebellion from all sides. 
whole tribal confederations rose up to throw off the yoke of Tardu, some led by the very Ashina Shad sent to govern them, people who feared that Tardu would come for them, just as he had for Talun Khan. Tardu had no choice. He had to call off the siege of Chang'an, call off the invasion of Sui China, and ride back to the steppe to put the rebellions down. Most important of these rebellions, according to the Book of Sui, was the rebellion of the Tiele, always a mighty people on the steppe, and a thorn in the side of many Khans. Sometime in 603, Tardu fell in battle with the Tiele. What can we say about Tardu? He was clearly a skilled Khan in some ways. His biggest mistake was probably launching a war with Iran instead of focusing on the east and securing the Khanate. He was ambitious and ruthless, but ultimately he was too ambitious and too ruthless. His very successes convinced the leadership of his own clan that he was too dangerous to be left in power, and so he was overthrown. Even more than that, his inability to accept the second place position in the Turkish political structure doomed the state by leading it to the civil war. In other words, Tardu's skills led him to many tactical victories, but ended in a strategic catastrophe for him and for his state. When he died, the United Khanate died with him. Now, there was no real reason that this had to be the case, necessarily. Theoretically, an all-powerful Khan could have re-knit the nomadic empire. But no such Khan emerged. In the West, the revolt by the subject Ashina Khans would take decades to put down. In the East, the Sui and their puppet Khan, Yami Khan, would be running their own game until the rise of the Tang put an end to the Sui and the Khanate in the East. Ultimately, though, I think that the institutions in the East and the West had just diverged so much over the course of the past 50 years that only an exceptional leader could have succeeded. And no such leader emerged. Instead, East and West fell into their own internal spheres. So join us next time when we discuss the aftermath of Tardu's death. The Turks facing a whole-scale rebellion on all fronts. The Khan dead. And the Khanate permanently sunder.